So if you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10, I'm going to read in your hearing tonight the first uh, 16 verses. And before I do it, let me just say that there are problems with chapter 16, but in my mind, some of the commentators, some of the people that write learned tones on biblical passages, uh, I think sometimes exacerbate what the problems really are. Um, there is a mystery in this section because in the 11th verse, it's in Aramaic, and I don't know why, but it, it is, it's not in Hebrew, it's in the Aramaic language, just the 11th verse, and as you notice, that's the verse that's in prose. Uh, the rest is a poem, and it's a poem that addresses the question of God's existence versus the idols of the nations, and how uh, the true God is seen in relationship to these other objects of human worship. And uh, I'm not certain why Jeremiah put this in at this particular point. I think, you know, there's one sense in which the Babylonians, for instance, if you were to ask the, the average Babylonian invader, what, what do you think about uh, Judah's God versus your gods? What do you think of the gods of the land that you've just conquered versus the Marduk and the other gods that uh, you think have given you victory and triumph. And their response would be, well, our God, obviously, is greatly superior, far more powerful, and far more effective than the gods of Judah because we won and they lost. That's, that's how the, the mind of uh, a pagan conqueror would think, that we triumphed by our God who defeated the gods of this land. And... Um, there might have been some people in Judah that might have thought, well, maybe the Babylonians have something there. Maybe the reason we did lose is that the God whom we trusted was ineffective. But of course the reality is that these previous passages have said that God himself has brought this disaster upon them in his judgment for their idolatry and their sins. And God was going to put them in a place of... of um, uh, oh, what's the... Refining, that's the word I'm looking for refining them through captivity and hopefully bringing them back to people that would be disciplined, the people that would be uh, humbled, the people that would be taught of him to stay away from the gods of the nations. And in a real sense, the tutorial for them begins here. It begins with what Jeremiah is about to tell them about their God versus the gods of the land and the need that they have to stand clear of the ways of the nations, the gods of the nations, the superstitions of the nations, all the things that would characterize uh, life in paganism, life in Babylon, versus life in Judah under Yahweh's kingship, under his sovereignty, under his lordship, the contrast could not be greater. And to really present that, uh, Jeremiah does a few things here. He exposes the idols to a great deal of mockery. And again, that's something you see frequently in the prophets, that they will uh, expose the false gods for really what they are. At best, they're the works of men's hands, at worst, they're demonic uh, forces. But they're nothing to fear, because they can do no good, no evil. And um, it's, they sub he subjects <coughs> idolaters uh, to ridicule because the practices they engage in are self-evidently foolish. And then what you see is a, a section where idol worship is portrayed in all of its 
folly, and then that's contrasted with the worship of the true and living God. The God who is king of nations, the God who is the everlasting king, the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is contrasted with the gods of the nations. So that's how it's laid out. You go back and forth between the folly of idolatry and the wonder and glory and the way in which the worshiping and serving the God of the nations teaches us righteousness, teaches us truth, teaches us um, in, in wisdom, teaches us uh, something more than he, I think he says the, the, the worship of the idols teaches them about wood. You know, it's like going to wood shop. That's about it. It doesn't teach anything real. Anyway, important for life in general. Not that wood shop didn't teach you something, it did. But, uh, I, but religion shouldn't be that which teaches you about wood. It should be that which teaches you about God, the true and living God. So let's read this. Let's read this. And again, verse 11, that prose part, just, uh, it's in Aramaic, but we have it in an English translation. So what the original language was shouldn't trouble us terribly. But the point is, whatever the problems commentators say are here, I think there's great coherence in this whole section. And so let's just read it, and then we'll look to expand a bit upon it. Hear the word that Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried because they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. It's a contrast. Address idolatry, how idols are formed, uh, and now the incomparable God, the incomparable God of Israel. There is none like you. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So not just the, um, uh, you know, the, the contrast with the vanities that are nothings, that are the objects of pagan worship, but even amongst the wise men of the earth, uh, the, their wisdom is folly in the eyes of God. God's wisdom is far greater than all the combined wisdom of the nations and their kingdoms and their kings. There is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. Now we go back to the folly of idolatry. They're both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. That's all they can teach you. They can teach you about wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. Now the contrast. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, 
The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. We're back to the folly of idolatry. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is the contrast. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. At that point, we'll cease the reading of God's word this evening. Now this passage that I've read in your hearing, what Jeremiah seems to be doing, as I understand it, is he's really taking up the challenge of foreign deities and what they represent. What they represent in the minds of the Babylonians who think they're victorious because their God, their, their victories is proof positive that the gods of Babylon are far greater than the gods of Judah. And in Judah, again, there may well be a sense that God's let us down. God's abandoned us. He's uh, not gone forth with our armies. In fact, our armies have been decimated. We're a people that have been really stripped of all of our dignity. And where is God in the midst of all of this? Um, God has seemed to abandon us in the hour of our greatest need, the hour of desperation, the hour of crisis. Where is the Lord in the midst of the concerns of our nation? And so with those ideas present in the hearts and minds of Jeremiah's hearers, perhaps, um, false ideas, deceptive notions, just finding common reception among the people. Jeremiah is called upon as the prophet of Yahweh to set the record straight, to draw the contrast clearly and sharply between the God of Israel and the gods of the nations. And in a sense, this contrast that he gives is not about which God's bigger, which God's stronger, which God's more powerful, which God's more effective. But the question, is there any other power other than Yahweh? Is there any other God other than Israel's God? Do these gods have any real existence at all? Now, it comes to us in the form of a poem, really in the form almost of a song. And much of it, it entails songs of praise, real, um, uh, real psalm-like statements uh, about the glory of this, of this God, of the God of Israel, of who he is, as well as uh, taunts, you might say, at the gods of the nations and the craftsmen that make these idols that are worthless, non-entities, at best just the, 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 the works of men's hands. And the song begins with uh, an introduction in which we find a call to hear the word that the Lord speaks to the nation. Hear the word that Yahweh speaks to you. O house of Israel, hear the word, listen up. Your God is speaking through his prophet, and what he speaks is a word that the people need to hear. Now it's interesting that 
the word is addressed to the house of Israel. And in a real sense, Israel as an entity has really ceased to be. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity. Their tribes largely dispersed. Not that there weren't scattered members of the differing tribes, but the cohesion of that nation that once was ruled by the kings of the north. It doesn't really exist any longer. There's now peoples that inhabit that area of Samaria that were implanted from other regions that the Assyrians had conquered. And yet there is hope that there's going to be a regathering of a genuine Israel, of a full united nation under God's leadership. And uh, all the tribes of Israel will be coming back. And again, I'm not thinking so much that that means there's a literal restoration of uh, the tribe of Naphtali or the tribe of Zebulun or the tribe of Asher. Uh, I really don't think that is going to happen. But in God's estimation, the promise he gave to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. That there will be this multitude that no man can number. And it's an interesting thing. In the book of Revelation, I think it's in chapter 7, you have that way in which Revelation presents to us things that, the, that uh, John hears, and then he turns and he sees something. And so he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's going to reign and rule. He's the lion. He's the lion of the tribe. He's the king. And he turns, and what does he say? He doesn't see a lion reigning. He sees a lamb as if it were slain. And it's not a different figure. It's Jesus. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But it's the lion of the tribe of Judah who had been slain for the sins of his people. And a similar thing happens in chapter 7 when he hears about the 144,000 of the tribes of, of Israel and their name. You know, there's 12,000 of this, of this tribe, there's 12,000 of Manasseh, 12,000 of Ephraim, 12,000 of Levi. Well, maybe Levi's not there, I don't know. But it was the uh, different tribes are named. And here's 12,000 people. They comprise this 144, a number that is you know, 12 times 12, which really speaks of the completed people of God. And that's what he hears about. He hears about these people sealed with the seal of God. And then he turns, and you know what he sees? He sees a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. No, he doesn't see something different from what he heard about. It's the same entity. It's the completed, redeemed of the Lord. And it's a restored Israel. Yes, in the, portrayed as the tribes, but yet portrayed as the greater reality of the multitudes so great that to Abraham it was said, it's as numerous as the stars of heaven. And as numerous as the sooner he can count the sand of the sea and count the descendants of Abraham. That's the picture that's given. And there's the hope of that restoration. And so God continues to address Israel. He continues to address a united peoples, even though what's left of Israel is but the tribe of Judah, the southern tribe. It's now under going to come under attack by the Babylon, Babylonians. And God speaks this word to them. And right on the threshold of exile, exile is coming. And you see it in verse 17. It says, Gather up your bundle from the ground, or you who dwell under siege. You're under siege. The attack is coming. The invasion is coming. Behold, I'm slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Isn't that amazing? God says, I'm going to bring distress on this people that they may feel it. This is not going to be an easy time. 
This will be a hard time for this nation. This nation is going into captivity. Pack your bags. Gather up your bundle. The land is under siege and you're leaving. So what's going to happen when they're brought into Babylon? Well, the tendency there is going to be like it was when the descendants of, of Jacob, the 70 that went down to Egypt, remained in Egypt and learned the ways of the Babylonians. I'm sorry, learned the ways of the Egyptians. Learned the to like the food of the Egyptians, to enjoy the life in Egypt, even as slaves, so that they're, they're desirous of returning when the first troubles happen to them, when God's brought them out and brought them into the wilderness so that we had not left. Although we go back where we, you know, we enjoyed the flesh pots, we enjoyed the, the garlic and the leeks and the onions and the, the herbs and all the spices and all these great tasting food and we just get this plain old manna. Uh, they're filled with complaints um, because they've learned the way of the nations. They've learned the way of the Egyptians. And this is the great danger of this people going into captivity. Now, they're not going to go into captivity for 400 years like they did when they went down into Egypt. It's 70 years, and uh, but yet the warning is, do not learn the way of the nations. In fact, allow the ways of the nations to be seen with the eyes of truth that Jeremiah is about to present to you so that when you see what the nations do, and you see their worship practices, and you see how they carry out their idolatrous ways, you might see it through Jeremiah's eyes and say, that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. How could that be truth? How could that be religion? It's manifestly folly. That's what Jeremiah is telling them, this tutorial about idolatry, so that when they go into Babylon, they'll see it in the light of Jeremiah's words. Don't learn the ways of the nations. And then also he says, don't be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. Again, one of the things the Babylonians were great at was astrology. Of learning the signs of the stars and of the constellations and of the heavens. And they would be spooked if something it was in the wrong house or in the wrong uh, alignment of the stars and negative things and bad omens and reading the future and all of their superstitious ways of divining future things. A lot of it had to do with the stars. Some of it had to do with reading the organs of, of, of sacrificed animals and if something was amiss that means we're going to lose in a war that we're going into in all kinds of ways they get troubled and spooked and dismayed uh, at uh, these omens that their learned supposedly learned people uh, told them about the future what the future would hold and don't do that don't go there God knows the future God holds the future in his hands don't look to the astrologers. Look to your God. Don't look to those who would tell you the future. Look to the God who's already through his prophet told you what Israel's hope is, what Israel's future destiny is. Trust his words. Hear the word that Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. This is tu- tutorial before exile. This is how you deceive 
this new land you're going to, their practices, their ways, don't follow them. Don't learn them. Don't fear their fear. Trust in your God. Make Him your confidence. Make Him your hope. That's how the tutorial begins. And then it moves on to this contrasts, series of contrasts. First focusing in upon the idolatrous practices and exposing those things to scorn. And then focusing in upon the contrasting reality of who Israel's God is. He begins with the emptiness the hollowness of these foreign deities. He uses the term vanity. The customs of the people are vanity. He speaks to the issue of how empty it is. That's what vanity means. It's hollow, it's meaningless, it's it's empty of, of any real meaning. When Ecclesiastes says vanity, vanity, all is vanity, it's saying there's not meaning. There's not substance, there's not reasons, there are no answers. In, at least in the opening part of Ecclesiastes, we come to meaning in the, in, in the end, when it says, fear God, keep His commandments, this is the whole of man. This is the whole of man's existence and being, is to fear God and to keep His commandments, but apart from God, are the things we see under the sun, the things we see not in relationship to Israel's God, everything seems so empty, hopeless, hollow, meaningless. Indeed, you're going into Babylon, and that's the reality. That's the reality. Their practices are just folly, they're ineffective, they're meaningless. It is all vanity. The customs of the peoples are vanity. And here's the display of it. Here's the display of vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down. It's worked with an axe by the hands of the craftsmen. The man who fills trees, he gets out his tools, he gets out his axe, he gets out the things he works in wood with to craft an idol. And then he decorates what he's made. He's taken his tools, he's made this idol, he's made this figure, whether it's the likeness of a, of a, of, of a beast or an animal or whatever it would be, um, then he decorates it with silver and gold. Again, all created reality. He's taking it. He's taking a tree, a tree that God has made, a tree that God has planted, and he's going to turn that into a god. He's going to turn that into an object of worship. He's taking the silver and gold and the precious stones that are the just the beauty of God's creation, the things that He's planted in the earth, and then He's going to make that to decorate and to make the to, to try to beautify a piece of wood made into the form of of some beast or some. Uh, object of, of worship that's meant to represent some deity that they're worshiping. And, and then he not only does that, he takes out his hammer, and he takes out his nails, and he fastens it. He wants to put, put it into some secure place. Now, hard to know why. Maybe it's because he doesn't want his God stolen. <laughs> you know, put fasten it in a secure place, make it harder to steal, or maybe it's just he doesn't want his God to fall over. This is not a. This is not a uh, something you can look to for your support when it needs your it needs support. It needs nails to fasten it into a place so we so it would be supported. And, and we're going to look to it for our support. 
What a folly. What, what, what an absolute ridiculous proposition. Idolatry is setting forth to its devotees. He says their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Now, scarecrows are put out there to scare crows. <laughs> I hope you don't get spooked when you go out to a field and you see a scarecrow. It's, oh, it's Halloween. You laugh at it. It's funny. You think of the Wizard of Oz. You think of the, you think of the, uh, the, the scarecrow without a breath. Maker didn't give him a brain. He's going to the wizard to get a brain. Um, but it's nothing that can harm you. It's nothing that can bring any kind of trouble to you. The scarecrows might think so, but we don't. And their idols are just like that. Nothing to fear. The idols cannot do good, and the idols cannot do evil. They cannot speak, he says. They have to be carried. They can't walk. They're immobile. He says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be like a crow. Get spooked by a scarecrow. Don't be spooked by these idolatrous objects of pagan worship. They cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. They can't do harm to you, and they can't do good to you. There's no ability to bless, there's no ability to curse. That's pagan worship. That's what it looks like. Let's see that for what it is. And now look at the contrast. Look at the way Isaiah sets out who the true God is. There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due from all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms. There is none like you. The King of the nations. The wise one, wiser than all the wise ones of the nations. Power, wisdom, majesty, might, glory, all belonging to the God of Israel. Who would not fear you? Only someone with a hard heart, only someone with a blinded mind, only someone who has no sense of the majesty, glory, greatness, power of the living and true God. Fear is God's due. Again, not a fear that causes us to dread Him. Again, if we are His people, we, we love Him. But yet we reverence Him. We, re- we don't just cozy up to Him. We recognize He's the mighty God. He is the majestic God. He is the eternal King. He is the King of the nations. He's the one in whom all of the treasures of wisdom are to be found. Knowledge are to be found. There's none like you. What should you liken unto God? As part of God's holiness. As part of the reason Isaiah stands in the presence of this king. This majestic vision that he has of the Lord high and lifted up. His train filling the temple. The burning ones surrounding his throne crying to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy. And, and, and we think of holiness, of course, most of all in terms of ethical holiness. But in a real sense, the idea of holiness has to do with how separate God is, how different God is, how other God is. There's nothing like God. And, and, you, and we, you, you, you quake in His presence just because it's, it's like nothing else. 
Nothing else that you could ever think or conceive of. God is unlike anything. He's incomparable. So God is to be seen. Comparison and contrasting with these objects of human worship. He's the true object of worship. He's the true living and true God. It's his due to be feared. It's his due to be sought. It's his due to be worshipped. It's his due to be served. And so you see mockery of the false gods followed by praise and worship and adoration of the true God who is the king of all the nations. Even he's even Babylon's king, even though they don't know him, even though they don't recognize him. They're worshiping these vanities, but the true king is still the God who reigns. And you know, we have little pictures of Daniel's presence in Babylon leading to Nebuchadnezzar becoming humble, to being made to go out as a wild beast into the field and to eat the grass and to live as, 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 as a beast until the sanity returned to him. And then he's brought to confess that God is the true God and that he does his will in the armies of heaven amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And he gives the kingdom to whoever he wills. Daniel's God, Israel's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God, the living God the God worthy of worship and of praise. Now with verse 8, we're heading back to the idols. And I grew up with my mother always telling me, don't call anybody stupid. (laughs) That's supposed to use the word stupid. Well, there's certain things that are really, really stupid. I mean, it's senseless. It's ridiculous. It's something that makes no sense whatever. And uh, it's an appropriate title when you think of idolatry. When you think of the practices that people engage in as human beings made in the image of, of the living God and carrying out these senseless practices, uh, God calls it what it is. And they're both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols has been wood. What can you learn from an idol? What can you learn from a thing of wood except, oh, that's, that's pretty cool what he did in making a tree into that. I wonder how that's done. Go to a wood shop and figure it out. <laughs> Go get taught by a carpenter how to fashion a piece of wood into a, a bird or a wolf or something else that you can, you know, you can, you can wax and you can paint it. Remember Don McMillan had all those uh, ceramic birds and such? I think some of it was wood, right? Some of those things that he had. Amazing. Amazing skill to put those things together. Well, you can learn the skill of a worker in wood. You can learn the skill of wood, but that's about it. That's all you learn. That's all you learn. Get the meat and silver, the gold from these distant places. And you find that the craftsmen and the goldsmith, they work on these things as long as along with the working on with wood. And yet the result is still the work of men's hands. Man, the work of God's hands is now 
making a work of his hands and calling it the God who he is the product of God's handiwork. God's handiwork is human life and human beings. How do we go and turn and the work of our hands think that that can represent the God who made us? That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. And all of the foolishness of the practice. They not only adorn it with the gold and the silver, but they clothe it in violet and purple. And again, it's all the work of skilled men. That's it. That's it. They get marvelous skilled men. That's okay. You hear somebody make a great piece of music. We admire it. Um, it's skillful. It's wonderful. Um, you see, the again, the works of, the works of men's hands are, are not in itself something to be totally despised. I think there's something to be admired going to a museum and seeing artwork, the works of men's hands, creativity. But to take the creations that we make out of our hands, out of pre-existing material that God has made, he's made the trees, he's made the gold, he's made the silver, he's made the material with which we make fabric in order to clothe things. It's all the creation of God. Are we going to take that and concoct it together in our, our the, the stuff of our wisdom and our skillfulness to make a representation of God? The only real representation of God is, is actually human beings made in His image and likeness. We are to be living, visible representations of the true and living God. There's nothing we can make that can ever represent God. That's why we're not to be making graven images. That's why we're not to be representing God in terms of anything that's a created thing. Because what in all of creation can properly represent God except human beings made in His image and likeness? And that's God's handiwork. We are His handiwork. Imagine his handiwork thinking we're going to exceed God's handiwork in what we make to make something that's going to be a more excellent representation of the living God. Of course, we're not to worship people, but we're to see God's handiwork in human life and see as a reflection of his, his glory and bless him and praise him and go to our maker and go to our creator and worship him as our creator and not worship the creation of our own hands. Contrast to the work of skilled men is... Yahweh, who is the true God, who is the living God, who is the everlasting King. One thing about these idols is that they are dead. They have no life. They cannot breathe. They cannot walk. They cannot move. They cannot create. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot speak. They're dead. Lifeless entities. Where Psalm 115 reflects upon that and says, They that worship them are like them. Worshippers of dead idols become dead sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. We lose our spiritual faculties when we do not worship the living God. Our spiritual faculties simply die in the whole sphere of idolatry. It just moves us away from truth to lies and deception, from wisdom to folly. And we need to return to the God who is living, the God who is true. Find in Him the one who is not only the King of the nations, but here in verse 10 He's called the everlasting King. Wonderful titles that Jeremiah gives to God. He's the King of the nations. Here He's the everlasting King in verse 10. And He's also the judge of all the earth. In His wrath, the earthquakes, the nations cannot endure His indignation. When God comes in wrath, when He comes in anger, when He comes and judges, 
uh, Judah with this exile, who can stand before him? Who can protest? When his, anger, when his hand is stretched out, who can turn it back? It's one of the things Isaiah said. When God's hand is stretched out, who's going to take his hand and say, back away, Lord? No. You stand before him in awe. You stand before him knowing that he does his will and none can oppose him. And we need to take stock of what he's doing in the world and come to be still in his presence and come to worship him. Then in this Aramaic word that's found in prose in verse 11, something really compelling is stated by the prophet. Thus shall you say to them, you want the, again, this is a tutorial about idolatry. Jeremiah tell the people, going into exile, they're going to be exposed to Babylonian worship. Let them see it as it is. Let them see the folly of it. Let them see it in contrast to the God of heaven and earth. But in case they don't get it, tell it to them. Tell it to them. Thus should you say to them, in words, not in poetry now, but in direct prose, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth. And that's all the gods of Babylon. That's all the gods of the nations. They did not make the heavens and the earth. And they shall perish from the earth and from under heaven. You know, have you gone to the church of Marduk lately? Have you... <laughs> Temple of Baal? Are there Baal worshippers still? I mean, I don't think so. These are temporary beings when certain cultures devise these gods out of their own minds and under their own imaginations. Um, and when they die off, off of the earth, the memory of those gods are no longer in existence. This was the period in which their worshippers, in their folly, seek after them. But the God of Israel is a God who's He's in it for the distance. He was there in creation, and he's going to be there in consummation, and he's going to be there in the eternal. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun. He's the eternal God. He is the everlasting king. He is the God who made the heavens and the earth, and he shall never perish from the earth, never perish from under the heavens. All other entities worshipped by human beings, all other entities that are the works of men's hands, they will all come to an end. And there will not be any remembrance of them. It's the all-wise creator who is the eternal one who is remembered. And the one we need to have to with whom we have to do. It is he, verse 12 says, who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom. By his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. And when he utters his voice, things happen. He has a voice to utter. Idols can't utter anything. When God speaks, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. And it's something of the picture of creation, I think. When the mist rise in, 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 in Eden, um, you have the picture of God... Uh, it is creative activity uh, bringing forth uh, all the things that do exist and every man then in contrast to the God who is to be worshipped, who is to be adored, who is to be praised because he is the creator he's made the heavens and the earth, he'll never perish from the earth, his word established everything by the word of his, word of his power he, he brought into being all that exists 
And then in contrast, you see the stupidity and the folly. Verse 14 of the goldsmith who's put to shame by his idols. His images are false. There's no breath in him. There's no glory in pursuing this proliferation of idol making. They're worthless, a work of delusion, and the time of their punishment, they shall perish. They'll perish along with their gods. That's the reality of it. These gods will be destroyed, and those who are their worshippers will experience eternal destruction away from God's presence. And then the final contrast meets us in the words of verse 16. Not like these. Not like these is the portion of he. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. The inheritance of the people of God. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who formed all things and is God is our portion. Whom have I on earth on earth but you? There is none in the heavens I desire besides you. God is our portion and the joy of our hearts. He is the one we look to as our, as our inheritance. And the contrasting thing is also true that Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Isn't that an amazing thing? that we have our inheritance in God and God has his inheritance in us now we know that God lacks nothing we know that he has no need of anything he himself has life and breath in all things we're the needy ones and yet God views us in a way that in his love and in his kindness and in his passionate commitment to his covenant people is a sense in which without his people he has this sense of almost blasphemous to say this almost a sense of his own loss almost a sense of there's something not well with his creation uh, without those whom his image bears whom he's taken to be his own to be his inheritance that he has an inheritance in his people it, 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 there's that reciprocal reality of incompleteness without him. I don't understand that. Can, do you? How can that be understood? And you read it in the New Testament when it says that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power in every name in his name, in this age and in that which is to come. And he's been made to be head of all things to his church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. God is the God who fills all in all. And yet, his people, his church, is his fullness. I don't get that. How can we be his fullness? All fullness is in him already. He's been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high with all authority, power, dominion above everything. And yet, somehow, some way, the church has been honored in such a way that God says there's an incompleteness in him. It's always blasphemous to say it. I almost feel like I'm speaking heresy to say this. But yet the Bible says it, so we've got to be bold enough to say it. That God says we're his fullness. We're his inheritance. There's something not complete in God without his people.
astounding, absolutely astounding. What idol could offer such a picture of reality? They don't even try. They just offer confusion and folly and stupidity and ridiculousness and all the things that rightly are spoken of with great contempt. What a, what a blessed people are the people of God, the people who are the tribe of His inheritance, the Lord of hosts is His name. This is a tutorial in idolatry that Israel on the brink of exile needed to learn. They needed to hear. They needed to see what idolatry is through the eyes of God's prophet Jeremiah. And we need to see it as well. Again, the things that we tend to put in God's place to make the object of our longing and our love and our aspirations and our uh, really our idols. It's still the creature rather than the creator. It's still either what we've made or what God has made. We're not to be worshipping His creation. We're to be worshipping the Creator. And we're not to be worshipping the works of our own hands. We're to be worshipping the God who made us. The God who made heaven and earth. And all the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth, they will perish. All our lust after pleasure, all of our lust after fame, all of our lust after influence, all of our lust after all the things that people pursue in this world instead of God, all those aspirations will mean nothing. Will mean nothing. And one of the things about the internet that really is so striking is that so often they said my way, you probably see them on Facebook, of all the people in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s who were the most beautiful, the most talented, the most athletic, the most rich, the most everything. And what do they look like now? And it's almost as if they present these people as, as shame. Well, you know, this beauty and age. This beauty and age. But you know, when those people were young, they thought their youth was their ticket to everything. And they never, I wonder how so many of those people think of themselves now, that they've lost their youth, they've lost their beauty, they've lost their fame, they've lost their influence. They're just a little bit of, you know, uh, the next page of the, of the article, uh, of the series of things about the old, the, the old people that once were young back in the 60s and the 70s, and look at them today. Again, I don't look at those things to mock them, but certainly it's a lesson to those that trust in the passing things that are not eternal. Anything that's not rooted in the eternal God, the eternal King, the King of the nations, the one who made heavens and the earth, is just going to fail. It's just going to be, it's going to perish, it's going to be destroyed, and only the things of God will, will endure. Only the things of God will endure. Well, may we also learn this tutorial in idolatry and see his folly, and by his grace stay away from the practices and ways of the nations or in the ways of the living and the true God. Well, let's go to the Lord and seek Him together in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this time of considering Your Word. We're thankful, Father, that You warn us of the danger of the deceptions of the idols of this world. Though they're popular, though they're powerful sometimes, and 
people that trust in those things think that that's the reason for their success, their wealth, their beauty, their whatever it is that they they think is important. It's all going to fail them in the end. But you are the God who never fails. You are the eternal King. And we worship and we adore you. We pray for grace and to be a people that praise and thank you for who you are, for the hope that never never lets us down, for the realities that do not fade, the truths that endure to life eternal. And so we pray that you would be, as we've read, that it is your rightful due to receive the honor, the worship, and the praise of your people, that we would render to you that due. We would render to you that honor. We would serve you, we would worship you, we would adore you, we would please you. We would stand clear of all every every idol of the, of the heart, but Lord, everything that comes between you and our, our our deepest loves and our deepest aspirations, we would smash those idols and we would worship them no longer. So hear our prayers and thank and receive our praise and thanksgiving for the your goodness to us on another Lord's day and the ability to come aside from the busyness of our of our daily living, come together as the people of God. To, Come together with open Bibles and open hearts to receive ministry from your word. We pray that your word would sanctify us and encourage us and build us up in our holy faith. We ask you to hear our prayers as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.